This is an ABC podcast. Tala for lover and warm Pacific greetings. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Talia Olatia. Coming up on the program, PNG's Panguna Mine is being independently assessed for the first time to get a gauge of widespread environmental damage. They have to come out publicly, even if they're not going to go to the details, if they can say, yes, after the assessment, we are committed. And then doing something about the findings of the assessment, there's none as yet. The Australian government cracks down on employers who exploit migrant workers. They're set to introduce a package of reforms that penalises rogue operators. And excitement grows for Garoka's first flower festival. You'll find out all about what's in bloom this morning on Pacific Beat. Let's start, though, in PNG, where the man who laid the complaint that led to PNG's biggest corruption prosecution says he has no regrets, despite having to leave the country for his family's safety. Back in 2012, the then Solicitor General, Neville Devete, laid a complaint with police about suspicious payments of state money being made to what was PNG's biggest law firm, Paul Paraka Lawyers. Last month, after more than 10 years of investigations, legal battles, and controversy, the firm's principal, Paul Paraka, was found guilty of misappropriating the equivalent of $70 million of public funds. From his home in Townsville, Mr Devetti tells our reporter, Liam Fox, that it's a staggering amount of money and he acted because it belongs to the people of PNG. The burden that I have been carrying for 10 years 10 years uh, actually lifted off my, my shoulders. Uh, I, I was actually relieved that at least um, a justice uh, was done and justice has been done uh, in, a, in accordance with law. This is a really big, a really big uh, case and a big letdown for the people of Papua New Guinea. The, the 162 million, odd million, Kina, and we don't know, maybe there could be more than that, was only channeled uh, from... The, the, the very core and the very heart of Waigani from where the coffers are and channeled only through a few people uh, denying the people of Papua New Guinea. So it, it's uh, that that burden actually lifted. I mean, my family had to suffer through through all this uh, and because of the in, in, in intimidation and 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 thugger we had we had faced with this particular law firm over a period of time whilst I was in the office. So it it it, it kind of it when I got that. Um, uh, when I received news of the the conviction, I, I, a big burden was lifted off my shoulders. What has been the cost to you and your family since you laid that complaint? I came down to to do my postgrad uh, postgraduate studies on the twenty sixth of of January twenty thirteen. I arrived in Townsville, and in around that during the first quarter of twenty thirteen, that was when Paraka was arrested. I, I knew what was going to happen, so they they soon found out I was the one that, that laid the initial complaint. So uh, my family was actually my wife and my my three smaller younger children uh, joined me six months after I arrived here. So uh, my only two sons who were, who were still in high school were being looked after by their aunt in 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 Port Moresby, and that's when intimidation and threats started. Uh, they started receiving threats and intimidation and cars arriving at home and asking questions as to where I was and all that. When you laid the complaint, did you have any 
thoughts at the time about what could be coming, what might arise from this, what the cost could be? I laid the complaint uh, because my because my my conscience and my my belief that it is the wrong thing that that is happening. The people of Papua New Guinea uh, are being denied uh, all this, and it, it is plainly corrupt. I didn't really think of what was going to happen. Um, I, I knew to a certain degree that uh, I would be affected by, by by this because of the initial complaint that I, I raised with police. So over time, it then became apparent consequences will be I uh, would be facing the consequences of uh, being the person that re- the, that that put in the the initial complaint to police. You're looking back now on all that's happened since, not only to your family, but to PNG politics. I mean, the Paracagate scandal blew up. It nearly brought down the then Prime Minister, Peter O'Neill. We had the student protests at UPNG. Lots of things stemmed from this. Do you regret making that complaint? Um, for me personally, um, I, I, I don't regret one bit making and laying that initial complaint. This is uh, money that rightfully belongs to the people of Papua New Guinea. And, and, and the way it has been chiffoned out of Papua New Guinea, or the way it was, the people of Papua New Guinea have been denied 162 million, just about 72 million Australian dollars, is, is, is staggering. Do you plan to go back to PNG anytime soon? Not anytime soon, whilst whilst uh, the, the the matter is 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 actually still in court. I understand that uh, is uh, I think the the hearing on on sentence is actually scheduled for the twenty third of this month. I think not anytime soon. I don't think I will be I'll be going back to PNG anytime soon until I'm completely satisfied that uh, my, my safety would be would be guaranteed. It's the biggest amount that there's ever. Uh, it's, I think it's an unprecedented amount that has been stolen. It's staggering, and that's, that's the reason why I decided to to stay back in Australia. We all know PNG's got a huge problem with corruption. How would you describe the significance of this case? It actually has far-reaching consequences. Uh, first, first and foremost, is money that was denied for our, our people. And people are suffering in Papua New Guinea. The implications are, are run deep, and and the the, the government should take. Very, very serious uh, note of this, uh, this this decision, this court decision is very important for the government. People uh, in, in Papua New Guinea are crying out to get to take uh, account of monies that are being stolen by by only certain certain people, individuals, and perpetrators. But people are not being brought uh, to be to be to be held responsible for for their actions because there's no deterrence to corruption. Corruption happens on a daily basis. The way the way things are happening. That was former PNG Solicitor General Neville Devete speaking there to Liam Fox. Pacific Beat. Staying in Papua New Guinea, where a major environmental assessment is underway at the Panguna Mine on the island of Bougainville for the first time since the facility closed three decades ago. The mine was at the centre of a long-armed conflict between rebels and PNG security forces that killed thousands of people. PNG correspondent Tim Swanston has more. Under the hot sun, men, women and children are digging for gold deep in the pit at Panguna, which was once one of the largest copper and gold mines in the world. This alluvial mining is risky work, but many feel they don't have any other options. 
Most of our land has been destroyed that we could plant cocoa to get an income. So that's why we have some of our people paying for gold. That's Bernadine Kira, a community representative. Life has changed a lot. People are really struggling now to find money, to pay for school fees, for, to pay for medical expenses, even to build good houses. The mine closed in 1989 when local anger about the environmental impact and the small amounts of money being paid to landowners sparked an insurgency, leading to thousands of deaths. The mine's operator, Bougainville Copper Limited, which was majority owned by Rio Tinto, hastily closed the facility and it's since fallen into ruin. Millions of tonnes of mine waste, or tailings, is washed into rivers and creeks, contaminating once clean water. Villager Veni Neo tries to collect rainwater for his supplies. When the mine was operating... The Jabba River was destroyed, including all the smaller streams. When we see that it is about to rain, we put out our things to collect rainwater. But if we are late, there will be no water. Bernadine Kira says most people don't have access to clean drinking water. Because all our sources where we used to get clean drinking water, it's been polluted by the mine. By the tailings. For the first time, the widespread environmental damage is being independently assessed by a team of scientists. It's been mostly funded by Rio Tinto in response to a complaint filed by the Human Rights Law Centre on behalf of landowners alleging serious environmental and human rights impacts. Local MP and complainant Theonila Matbob wants the company to fund remediation. They have to come out publicly, even if they're not going to go to the details, if they can say, yes, after the assessment, we are committed to finding solution and then doing something about the findings of the assessment, there's none as yet. In a statement, Rio Tinto says the legacy impact assessment is the first key step to identifying impacts and discussing next steps with all parties. In 2016, the company transferred its shareholding to the PNG and autonomous Bougainville governments and plans to reopen it have stalled. Robin Wilson is Bougainville's minerals minister. If the mine opens, the mine is expected to operate for 28 years. Uh, and it's expected to make returns in excess of 58 billion US dollars. So that's a lot of money there. But for now, the future of the mine isn't clear. That was PNG correspondent Tim Swanson reporting there. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. You are listening to Pacific Beat with me, Talia Oletia. The Australian government is set to propose law reforms that would target, target migrant worker exploitation, including jail time for in, offending employers. The changes are expected to be introduced to Parliament within weeks, and it includes making it a criminal offence to coerce someone into breaching their visa conditions. For more, I'm joined by Dean Wickham, the Honorary Consul to Solomon Islands in Victoria. Good morning. Dean. Good morning. Now, Dean, how big of a problem has exploitation been for seasonal workers and other Pacific migrant workers here in Australia? Uh, Across the board, I think I've been working in this space for the last 15 years, not just uh, Pacific Island workers that are are exploited in this space. I think it's a good measure that the government has taken in in this case. It's it's, um, 
quite a big issue and it has been for some time. So I am assuming that these changes are welcome. Um, do you know what the consultation process was in terms of structuring what these reforms would look like and how they would serve, you know, the people that they are aiming to protect? I'm not aware of uh, any particularly consult- any particular consultation that has taken place. I wasn't involved in any of that, but more broadly over the years, I think there's been a lot of uh, discussion um, and cases that have highlighted need for reform in this space. When something like this um, gets announced, what I always think of is do the migrant workers, who sometimes English isn't their first language, are they aware of what is going on? Um, Do you know know if there are plans to um, explain this to people about what their rights are? Because my fear is if you've got an exploitative employer who doesn't pass on this information, then, you know, what measures are in place to actually ensure that they are being enforced and that these employers are the ones who are being punished, not the workers? Well, that's a very good point you raise, and in, in, in fact, there's also some need to understand whether the workers are, are going to feel uh, safe given the new measures. Um, whether or not this plays out as they expect it to will be also a, a part of the um, process to see whether it will be effective. Usually, uh, these types of uh, changes um, come with some challenges around communication and also, yeah, information dissemination right across those who are uh, in the predicament that they find them in in terms of uh, being exploited because a lot of the times these people are being exploited because of those issues that you you just raised around um, isolation and also, um, you know, a lot of people are living in remote areas um, and are not necessarily having access to those support services that that might help explain um, these changes and where they can seek help if if they choose to do so. Mm, And I know, I mean, I'm a journalist and sometimes law reforms go over my head and I need to have it explained to me. So I can't imagine if, you know, English is your second language, especially in a new country, how confusing some of those things might be. And, you know, having that access to the avenues that you can um, get support is is really important. Um, As a part of this crackdown, um, it's set to include jail time for offending employers that exploit workers. um, And that includes coercing someone into breaching their visa conditions. Um, You know, when I read that, I was thinking of those workers that we know who abscond, um, you know, from the contracts that they are in because of, you know, um, what they're experiencing at their workplaces. Um, And then they might go and look for work at other places too. Is it kind of a a two-barrel where you have to both look at the exploited workplace workers that they're running from and then, you know, how they might be exploited where they go to as well. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the case. In, to use the term, the jumping out of the, the pan into the fire in some cases where they're going to worse um, working conditions and, and absolutely being coerced off off the palm scheme in particular, there are people who are uh, in uh, the Pacific diaspora uh, that are asking people to, to join them in whatever working uh, situation that they have around the country. This is quite common practice. So this measure will go hopefully towards stemming some of that. 
You're listening to Pacific Beat. My guest is Dean Wickham, the Honorary Consul to Solomon Islands in Victoria. Um, Dean, when you first heard of these reforms, what were you hoping for that you perhaps didn't see? I know we still need a lot of the detail, um, but where do you think that the most pressing issues are when it comes to protecting um, migrant workers and seasonal workers from the Pacific? I'm interested in the whistleblower element of this, and and obviously the detail hasn't come out yet, but I think in terms of um, what protections and and what concessions whistleblowers will get um, will be very important. I'm really um, interested to see how this plays out because these entities and individuals uh, change their MO to suit the the, the space uh, or or the, the framework that they work within. Um, after you know, government makes changes to to this these situations, uh, these individuals and these entities uh, change the way of doing business. And I've seen it over the last fifteen years that they become very creative um, and continue to to um, you know operate in this way. Um, and there's you know there's plenty of people who are looking for opportunity to um, stay in Australia. You know the motivation to earn the Australian dollar is very strong. Uh, particularly from Pacific Island countries, so you know it's it's a complex space that we're, that, that we're looking at. But I think one of the um, ultimate um, uh, game changers will be that what protections and concessions in terms of visas um, and other uh, concessions they get um, if they if they blow the whistle, um, you know, to to discourage exploitate exploitation. And also to encourage those who are being exploited to to step up and and speak out. Mm. And I imagine, I know that I've reported on stories in the past where it was other Australian workers who might work at these organisations who are also the whistleblowers um, and, you know, or it's community members who, um, you know, raise concerns about what Pacific um, seasonal workers or migrant workers are going through. Um, Would those whistleblower... um, like concerns also extend to like you know the Australian public who are also raising those concerns. Yeah, I think that the Australian public are, you know have the protections of and understand the protections of the law framework that they that, that you know they live within. It's it's more the migrant worker coming in that doesn't understand that they do have rights even if they are here on a on, on a bridging visa. They still have rights and they're not to be exploited. Um and that and that's part um an important part of the work that is to ensure that people understand and have self-agency within this and that they feel uh, strong enough to, to speak up and to speak up for others in, in similar predicaments. We've had, you know, situations where, um, you know, worst-case scenario, people have been isolated out in, in the regions and, and have passed away because um, from, from health conditions that were clearly preventable but for fear of coming forward, um, and, and being exploited in that way have neglected their health to the point where they've actually passed away. It's, it's a serious concern and I, I you know, absolutely welcome uh, the measures that the Australian government have brought forward. Mm, indeed, and it will be interesting to see the detail of those reforms um, when they are brought to Parliament. Um, Dean Wickham, thank you so much for your time and for joining Pacific Beat this morning. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dean Wickham there, the Honorary Consul to Solomon Islands in Victoria.
Producer Kyle Evans joins us in studio now to tell us what's making news across the region. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Talia. Let's start in Fiji, where the Prime Minister has issued a warning that the upcoming budget might be an unpopular one. What's going on? Yes, that's right. So, uh, Sitavani Rambuka has foreshadowed it will be a needs-based budget and therefore likely won't sit well uh, with citizens who are already doing it tough with uh, with cost of living at the moment, like uh, like many countries around the world. So, this is reported by RNZ. Um, who said the budget is set to be handed down on June 30 and it will outline the government's financial roadmap going forward. However, Mr Rambuka said the government coffers are limited by a huge amount of debt at the moment and he wanted to make it very clear that resources are limited. Mm. And we know, of course, that um, Fiji had um, huge problems like many countries around the world, but because they were so tourism reliant that the COVID pandemic and obviously the war in Ukraine also inflating those, um, you know, cost of living prices, it can't be easy. Um, Do we know any solutions that they've come up with yet to decrease debt in the upcoming budget? Yeah, so uh, Finance Minister Biman Prasad actually told RNZ that uh, it will put measures in place to address that debt. Uh, That debt, according to the World Bank, actually reached 90% uh, during the last GDP. So to reduce that, they'll do it through a combination of tax measures, uh, reduced wastage uh, and prioritised expenditure in key sectors of the economy, such as infrastructure and social welfare. Uh, I understand they also want to improve the ease of uh, of doing business as well. So it'll be interesting Mm. to see what comes out of uh, of that unpopular Mm. (laughs) budget Mm. in a few days or a few weeks' time. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see if those um, ease for business, uh, both local business and foreign business as well, Mm. because that obviously might bring in more investment. Um, Let's go to Vanuatu now, where the police commissioner has reconciled with casino staff um, following a, let's call it just an incident last month. (laughs) Yeah, an incident, that'd be a a way of putting it. Um, So the Vanuatu Daily Post has reported that the commissioner, uh, Colonel Robson Iavo, has uh, performed a reconciliation ceremony with casinos 21, casino 20 21's management and staff in Port Vila, and uh, and this comes after, yeah, that incident where uh, he allegedly made threats against three tourists while reportedly intoxicated, and was subsequently escorted out and banned from entering the premises for uh, for two years. Uh, however, according to the Post, uh, he has shown genuine remorse and has issued a sincere apology to the six staff uh, that were involved uh, at that ceremony. I understand it was also conducted by the uh, the Sanmar Province uh, Council of Chiefs. They enjoyed traditional kava and, uh, and even a pig was enjoyed mm. by all as mm. well. Yes, it sounds like definitely remorseful and the fact that it made international headlines meant <laughs> that apology was obviously in order if you've done the wrong thing, but perhaps even more so, more pressure to do that. Um, let's go to the OFC Women's Champions League, which is taking place in Papua New Guinea. It was the third match day yesterday and I understand that it's a young unlikely goal scorer that is winning some attention. That's right. Definitely the uh, the headline of the day. The youngest player in the competition, uh, Florencia Khalifa of Samoa of Samoa's Kiwi FC, delivered a magical moment by kicking a goal against uh, Koale FC at just 13 years of age. It marked the first goal of the competition uh, for Kiwi, uh, 
And for a second, it actually looked like it was going to pave the way for a monumental upset. That wasn't to be, however. Uh, Koale did find an equaliser off the boot of Mariner Joe uh, before her teammate scored the winner. But look, the day very much belonged to Florencia, who turns 14, I believe, in about a week's time. Uh, her side has done it tough uh, so far in the competition with a, with a 6-0 and, and, and 9-0 loss. Uh, so it was a great effort to push the uh, Solomon Islands, Islands champs to the brink. And uh, we've actually got a grab uh, from Florencia, and we'll play that now. I'm doing this for my family, for my club, Kiwi Football Club. Doing this for my school, FVP College. Yeah, really, really cute stuff uh, there. Meanwhile, there was another game played yesterday between uh, AS Academy Feminine. Uh, they beat the Fiji champs uh, Lembasa FC to stay undefeated. And uh, the tournament will continue on Thursday with uh, Hakata United uh, facing facing Koale. And, uh, and Kiwi will play uh, mm-hmm. Academy. Yeah, and I was speaking to the coaches um, of Koloale and Lambasa last week, and they were saying what this does for the women's game, the Oceania women's soccer game, of course, um, is really, really instrumental. And, of course, um, in July we'll have the uh, Women's World Cup here mm-hmm. in Australia and New Zealand. So it's really interesting to see what this will mean for women's soccer or football um, in the region. It was also a big week in Pacific Rugby League with both Pacific teams recording a win in in their Australian competitions. Isn't that right, Kyle? Yeah, it was a huge week in Pacific sports, so much so we couldn't even cover it uh, all all yesterday, uh, as, as you know. But uh, the PNG Hunters, they kept their finals hopes alive with a very impressive 34-18 to 18 win over the Tweed Seagulls. Uh, they ran in six tries to three uh, in that match that some would have considered an upset. Uh, the, headli- the headline run, or the headline try, I should say, uh, was set up by uh, Junior Ropp, who um, put on, I've got to say, one of the biggest hit-ups I've ever seen to set up Roderick Tye in the corner. I would encourage everyone to jump online and, and have a look at that highlight. Uh, meanwhile, the Silktails um, were also very impressive in the Ron Massey Cup. They won 34-12 to 12 over the Canterbury-Bankstown Bulldogs. They're now sixth on the ladder. Lots of sport and news going on. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you. That was Kyle Evans there with the stories making news across the region. Inzane Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league. Featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Your home of rugby league in the Pacific. You're listening to Pacific Beat with me, Talia Olatia. Australia's federal court will soon head to the Torres Strait Islands to conduct hearings in a landmark case on climate change. In fact, they're already there on country. They'll hear testimonies from islanders who say their land is changing dramatically because of sea level rise and increasing storms. The case is being watched closely around the world, including in the Pacific, where the outcome of the case could influence future legal battles around island states and climate change. ABC's Indigenous Affairs reporter Christy Wellauer spoke to Saibai Elder Auntie McRose-Elu, who says the federal court visit is an emotional milestone. The biggest worry for our people is, you know, because we're so far away, we're about 45 minutes from the main airport on the Torres Strait, which, was not, which is Horn Island. That's through by air. We don't have any cargo ships or any passenger liners. I mean, so many hundreds of miles away from the coast of Australia, our nearest, nearest uh, uh, 
island to us or nearest country to us is Papua New Guinea, but we are not part of Papua New Guinea. We are part of Australia. So if there is, if it's a possible, you know, if it's happened, like if there is a threat of a tidal wave or icy uh, rising sea levels come about and the people that are going to come to our survival is from Papua New Guinea. An Australian government is accountable for us because we are un- we are an Australian, and you know, and they have accountability to look after us. You know, because we have a treaty and constitution uh, that have been there for many years that, that you know that they they have a duty of care to look after our places, our islands. So my biggest worry is is losing of if there is a question of relocation from the islands the people to go away. It's going to be the biggest task ever. And, and and the feeling that I get from our people up there is they're not really they're, they're not really prepared for that. And and the feeling that I've got from them was that, you know, many people are saying, well, this is our God-given land. And if it's, if this is his will, you know, like we, we're going to stay here. Yeah, what do so, you think uh, of um of of the yeah, of the federal government, the federal court going to your islands, but also, you know, Paul and Pabai for bringing about this climate case on behalf of your island and the other islands in the Torres Strait. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, beginning with the top Western islands, there's also central islands, which are the Atoll Islands, which are very much like I, if you, ex, if you have been to the, to the Pacific, the islands like Tuvalu, Kiribati, and all those islands have been affected. By these, the, the central islands are uh, tall islands. They're like sunbars. Now, they, they, for me, they, they're probably in a, in a more, more crucial situation than our islands. At least we got a Papua New Guinea not far from us, but these central islands, they, they're very vulnerable. They're so far away, and they're also um, located on the shipping route. Which is a big channel that comes across with the international ships that are going through, and you know that when there's a high sea, you know the monsoonal season, it's very dangerous, and they don't have the seawalls. They bring they they got this um the uh, the the sand uh, the the bags with the sand that they're trying to build up on the areas around, but they're not effective at all. That's not that's that's ridiculous. It's just not there. It, it, it's not it's not going to be the saving of the lives of people on the islands. If I can say that more, uh, you know, widely, so I think it could be more, could, could, there could be more done to be able to save these islands because the people are not going to move from those islands. And the cry today for, uh, from them to the government is do something for us. We're not living these islands because we're not going nowhere because those other countries are not our, our land. These are our cultural land. These are our surroundings. This is where we belong to. Have, has the federal court, in your knowledge, ever been to the, the islands again since Mabo? Or do you think this is the first time since then? No, this is the first time. This is the first time ever going to be on my islands. The first one was on Mari Island, you know, when there was a, when, when I, the late uh, uncle brother, Koiki, you know, with, with his case, and he brought the high court to, to Mari Island. But but not to my islands on the top west. This is going to be the first time. And I think in a way that it's really valuable, not valuable, it's really, really um, good in a way that they're coming up there and see it for themselves and, and walk on the land and see what the and feel, feel the land, how it is and how it's affected by this, by this, um, you know, um, 
uh, climate change. And the people will talk, talk openly to them and they, there will be witnesses there to be able to talk about things. And then for, to show them where it was, where it was used to be and where it's no longer there. And our survival is, is, is very, very rare these days, you know, that we, we, we barely, we have to go a long way to get the seafood and we, we don't plant anymore. And, and, and the boat that comes with the cargo for the uh, supermarket is weekly basis. When, when there's a monsoon season, you know, it's, the rough seas, Torres Strait is one of the uh, precious waters in the world. When there's monsoon, there's no way that, you know, any, anybody can travel through those waters. What do you think and what do you think of the, of the uh, what does the community think of Paul and Pabai, you know, leading that fight with this case? Well, they're really supportive. They're really supportive in a way. And, and um, I mean, it, it, you know, you have to also remember it's a very, very emotional thing for all of us, in, including those two plaintiffs, Paul and uh, Habai. Now, for them to do, because they know that, you know, what they're doing is whichever way, you know, we're hoping for the fruitful, um, um, you know, um, outcome of it at the end. And the people are, um, reinforcing and, and, uh, and supporting them in a way, whichever way possible is to like, you know, we, we, we're looking at the white man world that what we call it, you know, where the justice lies, you know, where the laws are being written for all of our affairs. That was Saibai Elder Auntie McRose Elu speaking to ABC's Indigenous Affairs reporter, Kirsty Wellauer. Pacific Beat. Now, flowers might be a lovely gift or a vibrant addition to your garden, but for one businesswoman in PNG, it's also opening up business opportunities both at home and abroad. Eight years after starting her flower shop on Facebook, Vicky Narare has found a growing pun intended, and somewhat unique market out of her home in Garoka in PNG's Eastern Highlands. Her business now supports dozens of women in nearby villages and has even got the attention of importers in Australia. She's now looking forward to showcasing her dazzling plants at the first ever Garoka Flower Festival. And she joins us now. Good morning, Vicky. Uh, good morning, Talia. Thank you for having me. Now, I have to admit, Vicky, I tend to kill plants more than I grow them. <laughs> That's um, how I started. <laughs> really? And now you've got a business. So how did you go from, you know, being someone like me to having a blooming business? Um, I, I guess it was just because I was surrounded by plants. Here in Goroka, you're just surrounded by beautiful plants. You can't help but, you know, take interest in them. Uh, so, you know, it started off as just a hobby and then, you know, why not make money out of it? <laughs> Sounds like a good plan, provided that you can get those plants to grow. And I understand that you, um, you know, worked at an oil and gas company before this. So how did you make that transition um, and such a successful one at that too? Yeah, it seems like a world away from what I'm doing now. Um, it's been 20 years since I've been in the workforce. Um, but you know, uh, the decision was made around family. Um, you know, we had um, uh, kids then, and we decided that um, Port Mosby, Port Mosby, was not the you know the place to raise kids or family. So when my partner then um, had an opportunity to move to Goroka, had a job here, 
um, we decided to move with the family. Mm. And I understand that Garoka is an ideal place for growing flowers. You described that there's lots of flowers <laughs> around you. What is it about yeah. that makes it so good? Is it the soil, the water? Um, What's going on? It's been, it's been described as having a perpetual spring um, climate. So, you know, right now I'm talking to you, it's 14 degrees. That's not, you know, something you hear about, you know, for PNG being a tropical country. Um, you know, the the climate's consistent throughout the year. Mm. Um, and then that's that's ideal for plants, especially temperate plants. And I guess for Goroka, it's, um, it's a shining in the way that we have all these temperate plants that are, and, and flowers that are, that we don't have on the coast, growing along the coast. And that's where I guess the interest has picked up and the demand has picked up as well for because most of our clients are in Mosby mm. and most of our Mosby clients and Mosby, you know, the population in Mosby and along the coast, they used to, you know, tropical flowers. So when we were, we were sending down um, plants like or flowers like dahlias and tuberoses and chrysanthemums, asters, that was something new for them. And, you know, it's it's what they appreciated and was in demand, which is um um, you know, in Goroka, we're b- being surrounded by that and we don't see the value in it. But when you send it down to the coast, there's a lot of um, um, demand for it and value in it. And um, there's a lot of money to be made in those um, um, type of flowers. Mm. And not only beautiful, I imagine it would smell amazing. You must always smell good. Oh, so yeah, good working we... with flowers. Well. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, um, the, the one that really stands out for us is tuberoses. Um, you know, and some people like my daughter, we, they can't be surrounded by tuberoses. She gets hay fever often. Oh, of course. So, yeah. you know, we, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I try to have them, but the thing is because I'm an aggregator, I don't have, I don't grow these flowers. Well, mm. I just started growing them. Mm. But what happens is I get orders from florists in Mosby. I don't stock any flowers. As soon as I get the um, orders from Mosby, the florists or event coordinators, mm. I, you know, outsource from, um, you know, from the mamas in the nearby villages. Mm. And, of course, um, you know, working with those mamas in the villages that sell your flowers, that has to have, like, additional flow-on effects for the community. Um, you know, oh, yeah, yeah what, what have they told you about what they've been able to uh, achieve for their families um, through flowers? Uh, at first, it was just the basics, you know, um, um, essentials for the houses, you know, like, um, you know, soap and oil. That's what they always say. And then it went on to them being able to connect um, electricity to the house, because one thing that I'm really adamant about is having, you know, um, be able to contact them when they are, when I get orders. You know, I get orders even at two o'clock in the morning. So I have to be able to call them and, you know, the only way I can call them is by mobile phone. I tell them there's like, there's like about 50 or 60 mothers that support me yeah. and I can't go to every house. So I, we depend a lot on mobile. So, you know, one thing they wanted to do right away, right away was put, um, connect electricity to their homes. Um, the other thing that I hear about is they have, um, they are able to put their kids through school which is which is always good to hear. Um, and then for one mama in particular, she was able to um, put her husband to school. So that was that was a great story to come out of that. 
Wow. Paul Kelly, um, uh, Australian musician, has a song from Little Things, Big Things Grow. And literally through flowers, <laughs> you are growing communities. <laughs> this is really, really impressive. Um Vicky, oh, you're listening to ABC Radio Australia's Pacific Beat program. My guest is Vicky Narare, and I'm, to be honest, just trying to steal all her flower secrets from her <laughs> um, because we know that Papua New Guinea is well known for its stunning orchids. Um, the Women's Rugby League team is named after the orchids, so you know you're doing something well. Um, I have tried so many times, I cannot tell you, Vicky, the number of times I have bought an orchid plant and then somehow it has died <laughs> two weeks afterwards um what can you do you have any tips when it comes to making orchids thrive is it like am i overwatering it do i need to neglect it how does it work well i i've, I've had to learn through a lot of youtube you know youtube university is very help, helpful at the moment so most of them um the with orchids um each you have to know the type of orchid so I don't know. There's a lot of plant apps that you can use, but if you're familiar with what type of species it is, then each species have you know specific needs that you know some like water, mm-hmm. a, a lot of water. Some you know don't mind just you know them being ep- epiphytes. It yeah. just ha- you know they're attached to trees and they don't really mind. Whereas some are really picky. So I guess it depends. And then some of them. Um, as I said, the epiphytes, some like to grow in, um, you know, in soil. So mm. it, it really depends on the type of orchids um, you have. I'm like, you're blowing my mind right now because all I've ever <laughs> gone is I've gone orchid. And it, like, of course, you would have to put it in the conditions that it likes <laughs> as opposed to yes, my rogue attempt. I think, oh my God, <laughs> you're going to make a gardener plant grow out of me yet, Vicky. <laughs> um, I know that flowers can be quite expensive. I'm I'm interested in who calls you at 2am to ask for flowers. I'm, sh- I'm sure that, oh, that might be some desperate it's... flower money. Um, but yeah, what are your most prized flowers? What are the flowers that people want and are there particular times when these flowers come too okay we have we have um we have some um flowers that are seasonal and then we have some flowers that bloom all throughout the year so we're lucky that we can supply throughout the year um we've got you know things like plants like uh sorry flowers like agapanthus which is seasonal so we can't supply certain times of the year mm. and then we've got orchids and lilies that you know we're lucky to have throughout the year mm. um at the moment our most expensive um cut flowers are um anthuriums they can go up to six skin a stem per stem and, and what do they look um, like the can volume, you describe them for me uh, they're you know they they the flower or what you call the flower, people tend to think of as the flower is a modif- modified leaf. The actual flower is on a, um, it's called a spadex. It's like, um, it's like a, if you see it, it's like a, um, like a stick sticking out of, you know, the modified leaf. Oh, wow. Um, we, yes, we supply, you know, uh, last year was about, you know, about 10,000 stems of those. Um, and which, you know, uh, they're about, they can go up to three kina, even five kina per cut. So you can imagine how much money the mamas are making out of, um, you know, just supplying one type of flower. So um, that is. Yeah. And then we also have, 
We also have tuberoses. Those are the ones mm. that smell really lovely. That's um, we charge, you know, three kina a stem. So, you know, mm. prices vary yeah. according to the type of plant. And then you have plants. We have plants that we sell by the stem. We have plants we sell by the bundle. Mm. Yes, and I know as someone who purchases flowers, you know, you can never just have one stem. Sometimes you need a whole no, bunch, and can't. then obviously you have to have a whole bouquet. <laughs> exactly, and obviously that's where the money comes in. It's very, very smart. Um, Vicky, if people want to check out your flowers, is your Facebook page the best place to go to? Yes, my Facebook page, and then um, on my Facebook page, you have I have my um, my number as well as my um, email address. Um, I prefer to be contacted through my um, my phone my phone number yeah. uh, because you know you know I always have my phone on me. I don't always check um, Facebook, um, and the notifications don't always get pushed through. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm sure that you'll have a lot of people checking out your flowers. Um, Vicky Narari, thanks so much for I joining hope so. Pacific Beat. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That was Vicky Narare there, and she'll be showing her flowers at Garoka's Flower Festival later this month. Oh, no, actually, like this weekend. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat for this morning. A reminder of our top story we heard from the man who laid the complaint that led to PNG's biggest corruption prosecution. Neville Devete says he has no regrets. This is money that rightfully belongs to the people of Papua New Guinea. And the way it has been chiffoned out of Papua New Guinea, the people of Papua New Guinea have been denied 162 million, just about 72 million Australian dollars. It's staggering. Indeed. And Dean Wickham, the Honorary Consul to Solomon Islands in Victoria, um, talked about proposed laws from the Australian government to help um, migrant worker exploitation. That specific beat for this morning. Fafatai le fa longu longu, tofa soifua.